0: Welcome to Books, Stories, People, with me, Nancy Richards. Two years ago, writer Bridget McNulty lost her mother suddenly, less than two weeks after she'd been diagnosed with cancer. Her mum's death hit Bridget so hard she found herself in what she calls a fog of grief. But would things have been any different if she'd had more time to prepare? Well, who knows? This is just one of the questions about grief that are so very hard to answer. Which is why, two years later, Bridget decided to write the book that she wished she'd had to turn to at the time when she needed it most. It's called The Grief Handbook, A Guide Through the Worst Days of Your Life. And with death so present amongst us all at this time of the pandemic, it's a book that probably every home should have a copy of. But aside from losing a loved one herself, what was her starting point?
1: You know, it's so funny... uh didn't tell anyone about it except my best friend. So my, my best friend lives in the UK and she's also a writer. And we send each other endless vo- voice notes, like 10 to 12 minute voice notes and catch up on our lives. And I had said to her, I have this idea that I need to start writing something and it's it's in my head and I haven't written anything down. And then we discussed it literally over one or two voice notes. And then it was just percolating in the back of my mind. But... I work. So I, I run Sweet Life Diabetes Community and and I have two young kids and life is very busy. And so I didn't have time to sit down and write a book, which I know is such a lame excuse, but it's actually a valid excuse when your kids are young and you're working. And then I had to go to Durban to check my dad in front for knee replacement surgery in March 2020. and. I thought, well, I'm going for five days. I'm not going to work. I'll be I'll be helping him in and out of hospital and to the step-down facility, but I won't have kids. And five days without kids is like endless weeks to people who don't have young kids. And so I thought, well, I'll sit down and I'll, I'll bang out a first draft there. And then the day that I got to Durban, I checked my dad into hospital and I was at home on the veranda having a gin and celebrating because it was the same hospital my mom died in and I had a lot of trauma around it and I'd gotten through it. And my brothers messaged and said, shall we have a family call? And I was like, okay, what about? And the president had just announced lockdown two days later, that you couldn't travel between provinces. So we had to emergency fly my husband and kids, they got on the last flight out of Cape Town. And we ended up living in Durban for six weeks. And so my five day writing retreat was then consumed by children and being the nanny and all the other things and whatever our lockdown experiences were. But amongst that, I managed to grab some moments to write and it was actually so lovely because it was back in my childhood home. I lived there from when we were six. It's the place that my mom died. My mom's ashes were actually on the shelf of the room in which I was writing. And it it felt very connected to her and it felt like part of my grief journey because that was all before the anniversary that I wrote the first draft. At first, it was more about me. It was about getting through the process of reflecting on the things that I'd learned and the things that were so hard and I'd written about it on my blog so I was able to pull some excerpts from there but it was really just about making sense of my grief. Sure, that is a far bigger (laughs) answer.
0: It sounds like what you might call the perfect storm. So there you were in the right place at the right time, at the right moment. Not able to leave the house. We literally couldn't leave the house for six weeks. Gosh, that's really quite extraordinary. Two things that pop out there. One is the blog, so you already had material. And the other
1: thing was the the percolation process, Mm. you Mm. know, with the the friend and the... And And not talking about it. And it's so interesting Mm. because I didn't even talk about it to my husband until it was our anniversary two days before I was going to Durban. And then I was like, I think I'm going to write a book. And he was like, what? Mm-hmm. And I said, I have this idea. Jess and I have talked about it a little bit and I think I need to write a book. And until then, I, it, it literally, I would jot down ideas as they came to me and I would, I would think about things that I wish I'd been told. But I think that helped because it almost built up its own momentum so that by the time I sat down to write it, I had the vision of what I wanted to yeah, write. So yes, you, you lived
0: through the requirements for the book. Yeah. Well, let's go back through living the experience. Your mum and I, as I say, two years is very little um, mm. in the big scheme of things. I'm yes. sure it's still quite sore. But I think, do you want to just tell us what happened? Because you went very quickly, very giving quickly.
1: you no time to, rep- to to prepare. No, none at all. So my mum and I were very close. I'm the, I'm the youngest of four and the only girl. And so we've always been very close. And and we looked very similar and often wore the same Clothes and the same jewelry and all of that. So I would talk to her all, all the time and she started complaining maybe about a month before she died. Her response to how are you doing changed from, oh, great thanks to, oh, I'm not feeling so great. But it was weird things. It was like she had acid, acid reflux that wouldn't go away. And so she changed her diet and then the soles of her feet were sore. And so she went to a podiatrist and then like she had a rash that wouldn't really go away. But it was nothing concerning, and she went to the GP. She went to the GP a couple of times, and he checked all her vitals, and everything was fine. And then she suddenly lost weight, like two or three kilos, and in a woman in her seventies, that's weird. And got very tired, like went out for lunch and then had to sleep afterwards, and that set off warning bells. And so we got her an appointment with a, a physician, a specialist physician who ran all kinds of blood tests. But it was over the long weekend, the 16th of June long weekend. So we had she got like a Saturday appointment and then we only got results on the Tuesday, which was awful. And the blood test results came back and there's a cancer marker that you can get in blood tests that I'm not a doctor, so my numbers are not going to be perfect. But it was something like it was supposed to be in the 30s and hers was 500. It was like beyond, it it was, yeah, it was emergency situation straight away, but they didn't know what kind of cancer. And so they checked her into hospital, I flew to Durban the next morning and they were running all these other tests. And then the bit that still feels unfair is that I got there on the Wednesday and then on, on the Thursday, so I saw her on the Wednesday, I saw her twice, we were still waiting for results. She had to go for a CAT scan, MRI and they were, they were testing everything. And then on the Thursday morning, as we arrived for visiting, she um, had a stroke as we were there. And so she wasn't able to talk properly, which felt like such a insult to injury because, and she could say some things and she could say, love you and lovely. And there were a couple of things she could say, but, but she couldn't communicate easily. And then that was the day that the doctor told us the diagnosis. And I feel grateful that the doctors were very straight with us. So the doctor said to us, it's the worst possible scenario. It was an esophageal tumor that had metastasized to her stomach, liver and brain, which is why she'd had the stroke. Esophageal, was a, which was why she the acid reflux. And I remember I, I used to have this thing where I, I've always been a warrior. And so I remember that I used to have this thing that I don't have anymore because this cured me of it, where I would imagine the worst possible scenario and think, well, if I'm prepped for the worst possible scenario, then this is going to be better than that. And so when we first found out she had cancer, I was like, okay, maybe it's only going to be a year. We'll only have one more Christmas, one more birthday. And then we got given this diagnosis. And I remember saying to the doctor, could it be a matter of weeks? Thinking she'd be like, don't be silly. Of course not. And she was like, I can't say. And it was 10 days from then that my mom died. It was just, it was so unbelievably fast. And we went to the oncologist the next day and he he said to us, "There's no hope which is actually such a gift for for a doctor to say because if you'd said like there's a ten percent chance if you do super aggressive chemo, then maybe we would have had to battle that out but but there was no option and so we bought a home a couple of days later we had to prep the room and get 24 hour carers and all of that and there were what 15 of us living in the house and all the kids got Rotavirus, and it was it was yeah it was awful. Everything about it was awful. But then she came home for this last week, and it was just peaceful and horribly fast because I didn't realize obviously how um, quickly people slip away once they start on morphine. And she needed the morphine, but it just was inconceivably quick. And then a week to the day that we brought her home, she was gone. And in the wake of that, the disbelief of someone like in March of that year, my mom and dad had flown to Cape Town and we'd gone to, to watch The Cure live. and We were like dancing together to The Cure in March. And then in June, she was in a morphine coma. And on the 1st of July, she was gone. It was just, I how is that possible?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Sure.
0: That's such a story, Bridget. And sure. I'm just wondering if, it, if it's at all helpful... Even sharing that story, I'm thinking of how many people must be in their heads rolling their own story over and, mm. and relating to what you say, not to mention looking, at, thinking about all those symptoms. But I mean, I, I imagine at a later stage, perhaps it's helpful, but at a much later stage. Let's go back to some of the things you mentioned. You mentioned unfair, mm. grateful, that last week was almost like a gift. Mm. You've been through a sort of a multitude of different emotions. Yeah. But, before we get onto the emotions, I want to I want to know: Do you think it might have? Been, I mean, this is hypothetical. Mm. Might it have been better
1: or worse had you had longer? I've thought about that so much. We've all thought about it so much, because the reality is: so there's four of us who all live in Cape Town, and my parents are in Durban. And if the oncologist had said, "Okay, there's a 50 percent chance you definitely need chemo," she, my mum, had always said she would never have chemo. She didn't want chemo. So then there would have been a six-way battle, right, where part of us would have thought, you got to try it. And she would have said no, but she had, had a stroke, so she, so she couldn't communicate properly. And then my dad would have had an opinion, and we are we are and were six very opinionated individuals. So then what happens there? Then is it like a tug of war and who gets to decide? And, what ifs what, <gasps> ifs, what ifs, what ifs. So there's all of that. And then whatever route you follow, the people who are on the other side then have to, oh, it, like that is horrible. And... Also, we live in Cape Town so and I have young kids and my brothers have young kids. And so we would have had to come back eventually and then what? I, I would have been living half here and, and half there. And I mean, I can see how practically it would have been difficult. Yeah. But
0: would it have been emotionally any more, any more better or worse? You know, would would the, the the grief have sort of stretched out over a longer period, or preparation for the grief? So the
1: disbelief was very difficult, and particularly difficult for my dad. They were married for over forty years, and they were each other's best friends. And 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 I think the shock of a sudden death is so immense because I was talking to someone whose whose mum just died, also very suddenly, and she said, "When does the shock wear off?" And I. I said to her, like, I don't think it did for the first year because the whole of the first year, I kept thinking, I kept, like, picking up my phone and wanting to call her or wanting to message or thinking this time last year, this is what we were doing. And so, yeah, I don't know. I, yeah. I actually, there's a there's a, a section in my book that someone mentioned to me the other day, the at least section, where people will always try and minimize your experience and say, well, at least she didn't suffer because it was quick or at least you had time to say goodbye if it was long. I, I don't think there is a better option. I yeah. think it all sucks.
0: Yes, that at least thing is quite its quite cruel actually, but I, I hear you. But the word shock is also Ooh. interesting because shock indicates something that makes your body almost sort of freeze Yeah, and it feels like. And yeah. shock is not just a short, sharp thing, it's something that goes on for a very long, long period of time. So you, one of the other things you say in your intro to the book when mm. you describe your, uh, how you arrived at doing this book, you say that your dad and your three
1: bro- brothers all reacted very differently. Very, different.
0: very briefly, can you, can you identify what mm. their different reactions were?
1: You know, it's so funny because you would think that we were all raised the same and we all loved my mom equally. And I will say that that is one of the... So there were two things I was able to feel immediately grateful about. It didn't make me feel better, but I was able to feel grateful about it. And the one that was that there were, there were no regrets. So there, were, there was no... None of us had things that we wanted to say to my mom. None of us had things we wished she'd said to us. She would tell us effusively and often how much she loved us and we would return. I think we all went on like individual holidays with her over the years, which is rare for grown children. So So that really helped. And it also... The fact that she died so quickly when I was mentioning the practical details earlier, those feel emotional to me because her death was so graceful and what she would have wanted because she wouldn't have wanted a lingering illness, she had told us many times, but it was there was nothing for us to argue about. And we're not a family that argues often but with four strong personalities, we would no doubt have found things to argue about. And so, I do feel grateful for that and we banded together like you don't know what's going to happen in that situation and and it has been a real gift for our family that we got through it like that and the ways that we reacted differently so my eldest brother's daughter was ill and in hospital so he had to focus on her He's, oh, he had the the worst of it so she was in the ground floor of the hospital my mom was on the third floor and he was essentially going from the top to the bottom and they didn't know what was wrong with her She had she couldn't stop vomiting for like five days it was awful. And then my middle brother was able to just sit with her. So he sat by her bedside and held her hand, which is actually really hard to do. And then my youngest brother busied himself with work. So he needed to keep busy and do something. And I kicked into hyper organized mode. So I made sure everyone was fed and that the house was running and the carers were there and they knew exactly what to do because then that gave me a sense of purpose. I could feel like I was doing something when I wasn't really doing anything. I'm not sure what my dad's response was really. In in retrospect, he's the eldest of nine, Irish Catholic, and two of his sisters and one of his brothers flew over from Ireland, which was great, so he was able to be with them. But it is so interesting to me that grief expresses itself so differently and even in the aftermath, like I immediately fell to pieces and just wanted to be on my own and my brothers all felt... You f- it comes in waves and you feel yeah. the shock waves of it at different times, but there isn't a right way. And yeah. I think that's what we need to know because we're not told that. We're not told that. So there that- isn't a right way and no. there isn't a one way. And there isn't a wrong and way. And I in- think
0: of how things are here in South Africa, at this particular moment in yeah. time where people, where death is with us yeah. very presently and all our different cultural backgrounds mm-hmm. and all our different... Uh, religions and yeah. our beliefs, it, it makes it almost impossible to say this is the one thing. No. But you have in the Grief Handbook, that's what you have attempted to do. You've attempted to write the book that you wished you'd had. Yeah. And I think one of the things that you you say, that you know, things that make you feel better and things that make you feel worse yeah. and things that sometimes people say in the hope of making you feel better, you oh. think, don't keep <laughs> saying that. Oh. What, what were the things that made you feel better and what made you feel worse? So the
1: things that made me feel better were... <laughs> people giving me space just to be how I was. I remember someone I didn't know very well. We were trying to set up a meeting and I, and I had explained what had happened. And he said to me, just do what's best for you. Let me know what works for you. Do what's best for you. And it was so lovely to just have someone being like, Hey, I know how hard this is just you do you. And like my friends who are able to just sit with me because grief is, It takes such a long time and it's actually so boring. Like I didn't have any new information to say but I had to keep talking about it and I was like weeping in restaurants while I was talking about it and they were able to just be there with me. That is such a gift and it's so hard to just be able to give someone a presence. And
0: and the other side of it, what what did you make you put your hand on your hips
1: and then you (laughs) just go away? Uh, There was a lot of it's that whole like Kate Bowler, who I love so much, has this podcast called Everything Happened. Well, she wrote a book called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. And she has this podcast called Everything Happens. And so there was a lot of that kind of thing, like, oh, well, one day you'll know why this happened. Or it must be such a shock, but one day the reason will come. Everything happens for a reason oh, and oh, that oh, kind of thing. Lots of well-meaning. Lots of Everything's well-meaning. well-meaning. That's the problem. So yeah. it's well-meaning, but it doesn't actually help or people would just kind of not make eye contact and not want to talk about it yeah. and they could see that I was a mess like I was very visibly a mess or there would, there would be a lot of like inappropriate timing wanting to talk about it like, yes. my son's birthday was uh, two and a half weeks after my mom died and so we had already planned his party so we had the party and I remember a couple of the parents kind of like cornering me in the kitchen and wanting to hear the whole gory story because it's a great story I understand it's a great story but like There's a time and a place, and my son's birthday was not the time or the place. I hear you. you. Um,
0: Yes, it is a gory story, and I think there's a lot more, but let's move away from your personal thing to what you've tried to do, because one of the the features of your grief was that you just were turning, as a reader and a writer, you were Mm -hmm. turning every which way to try and find information. You did a whole lot of reading, which you found was either too religious, too preachy, too um, uh, philosophical, too yeah. dense. Yeah. Uh, from that lot, however, you managed to sort of extract a few little golden gems, gifts. Yeah. <laughs> not, not least the fog of grief. Yeah, Just just explain the fog of grief.
1: It was such a revelation to me. I actually took a photo of the page and sent it to my brothers and my dad because so what happens is that when you're in the early days of grief, so it's not my idea, it's from Kenneth C. Hauk, and he wrote this very um, religious series of four books that were were very sweet and bits connected with me but but this was actually the main bit that connected with me and the idea is that when someone has just died you're in this fog of grief that is both emotional and physical and it makes it difficult to do anything so you, you and that was what surprised me so much was how physical grief was like my body felt heavy and like we all kept having dumb accidents like dropping glasses or like slipping on things and injuring ourselves in dumb ways and like bumping into things that have always been there. Like there was a there's a, a very real physical sense of discombobulation. And then emotionally it just feels like it's never gonna lift. Like this heaviness is you're never gonna be able to see past it. And it was such a relief to have it named because until then I just assumed that this was the rest of my life. Like that I would never be able to enjoy things again and I would never feel peaceful and never be able to do yoga again because that requires silence. Like there's all these things that suddenly become impossible and I thought I was condemned to that for the rest of my life and it was so relieving to me and that's really what I wanted to do with the book is say like it is so hard. It is the hardest possible thing you're living through right now, but it does lift. It's not forever and we don't know how long it will take until it will lift and it recurs, and it comes back in waves when you least expect it, but it isn't forever. You won't feel this awful forever.
0: So you haven't you haven't been preachy. What you've done is you've gone through sort of various stages, and I believe technically, because I Googled it, and technically <laughs> there are seven stages of yeah. grief, shock and denial, um, uh, pain and guilt, anger and bargaining, depression, the upward turn, reconstruction, and working through acceptance and hope, which are recognised as the yeah. way it is. But you've been more... Uh, sort of interactive with your book. It's more of a sort of uh, easy-to-read, uh, colouring in, or, yeah. well, you know, there's colouring in. I love colouring in. Um, so that people can sort of at a glance have a look and, and think, yep, I recognise that, mm. yep, I mean particularly I think the thing about sleep. Yeah. Which when you're really deep in grief, you actually it's almost impossible. Impossible. Um but you have some wonderful tips about <laughs> how to sleep with your eyes or
1: <laughs> with your eyes open. I still don't understand it. I do it anytime I wake so anytime I wake up in the because that that's the problem, right? Sleep is the one thing you need to feel okay and it's the one thing that deserts everyone. And it's and it's partly I think because of this fog of grief that you, you, you like physically and I did my editor was amazing, she made me do actual research because I'm a fairly lazy writer and <laughs> just like dashing things out on the page and she she made me do actual research because I had noticed in myself that my blood sugar, because I'm a type 1 diabetic so I test my blood sugar all the time and my blood sugar was just high for months, like no matter what I did and that's because grief is a prolonged stress response and during stress your body releases cortisol which is the stress hormone and that pushes your blood sugar higher and that doesn't let you sleep properly because if you have lots of cortisol in your system, it means that you can't get to sleep properly. And so mine wasn't so much I could fall asleep okay, but then I would often wake up in the middle of the night and that's the worst because you're like, and it's always at like 4 a.m. when you're too too tired to be up for the day but not tired enough to fall asleep again easily. And so my trick was staring, which I have actually since found out is... uh, a real thing, but they they suggest staring at something. But I would just stare at the wall and keep my eyes open because if your eyes are open, you don't have this whole cinema of things going on as soon as you close your eyes. And I would just stare at the wall until I would eventually fall asleep sure. again.
0: In the book, you refer to it, the, the surprising physicality yeah. of grief and how your body actually reacts over and above whatever's going on in your mind. But you've got, you've got sort of places where you can fill in, like um, dear future self uh, uh, things to remember during the first few weeks, yeah. treat yourself gently, um, you know, all sorts of things. Were these things that you went through
1: yourself? So you know what it was? More than that, it was that I wanted something. So that the other thing The Fog of Grief does is it kind of shuts down part of your brain functioning. So I read the philosophical books, but I couldn't. Get, I couldn't get it. Like it makes you a little bit dumb. And so I wanted this to be very easy to read and very... Straightforward to read so you didn't have to work at it. But then I remember going into exclusive books and looking for a book that would help and everything I saw had too many words. There was like no space for me to get what I needed to out. And then I looked at journals and they were just blank and I wanted something in between. So I think it's so important to get it out on the page. So that's why I was blogging and I, I don't tell anyone about my blog so i and I don't actually check who reads it, so I don't think that many people had read it. It was very, very depressing, but I just needed to get it out. And I think even if you're not a writer, it's so important to be able to express it in some way. And so that's why I wanted space in the book for people to be able to write if they wanted to write or to be able to draw or just to vent or like, it often happens, I know because I've spoken to other people about this too, that there's something that you just can't get over. There's like one aspect of your loved one dying that you just can't make peace with. And so just being able to write that out and yeah. vent about it.
0: The, the word you used earlier was unfair. And oh I thought, gosh.
1: I, I you know, how dare you God, I know. you know. And whatever. my dad kept, what broke me actually was my dad said to me that he felt cheated out of a decade with my mom. And oh. I was like, oh my God, because she was only 72. Oh. That's so young. You've got on
0: page 84, you've got a space for somebody to write in a letter to grief, you know, dear grief, this is what I'm feeling at the moment. And I think it's, there's all sorts of things, but, you know, your own personal experience is the very best possible research you could possibly have done. Mm. But, you know, going back to South Africa, where, you know, there are many cultures where a person has to be buried. Within twenty-four hours, yeah. which I think it must be quite stressful for yeah. everybody, but maybe especially it's, now. Uh, absolutely, but it, at the same time, maybe it's something. There are other places, other um, other people who need to go and see the body, mm. and need to have gatherings, <laughs> need to do, need physically need all mm. these things because mm. that's how it is. Mm. Did you do any research talking to other people about their various experiences?
1: It's interesting because I didn't, which sounds very self-centered now that I say it. But I did, I did a lot of reading into the aspects of it that I didn't have experience with. So I, I did a lot of reading into like complicated grief and, and PTSD, which I didn't feel I had the knowledge of. And even that letter to grief that you mentioned is a like a psychological tool that you externalize the thing that you're dealing with so that you can understand that it's not actually you. So the WHO has this amazing video about depression called the black dog of depression, where they externalize the concept of depression as a black dog so that you can understand that you are not your depression, you are not your grief. It's something that you're currently experiencing, but it's not actually yours. So I did a lot of reading and listening and, and watching about those aspects, but not about the actual grief experience. But it's interesting because now I've started thinking a bunch of people have already reached out to me and and the book is not yet on the shelves, but a bunch of people have reached out to me asking if this would be appropriate for other kinds of loss. So like divorce or miscarriage or even like loss of jobs. So I think I would really like to write the loss handbook will be the next one. And in that, I want to interview people about different kinds of loss and how they dealt with them because... Yeah. this is very deeply personal and I think it had to be deeply personal in order to um In order to exist. be effective. Yeah, yeah and in order to be... you had to get it out. Yeah, to be effective. Quite, quite quickly. But, but I'm, I'm
0: just wondering... Sorry to interrupt no, you, but I'm just wondering, and I'm thinking the letter to grief, I'm sure COVID has must bear a lot of responsibility for all of this. And that, I mean, that is just... Huge, and I'm sure there are probably a hundred COVID books, if not already written, so probably <laughs> in the process. Yeah. But is there, a, is there a chance that it might be translated?
1: Huh. I, I, I mean, there are even many different it. languages in it this army, country. There are many different languages. I'm kind of waiting to see what the response is. Yeah. So at the moment, I've had two reviews, <laughs> and that's, and that's it. Early yeah, days. it's so it's so early. So I want to see if it resonates, and I I don't know because it feels so personal to me. And I know the personal is the, what's that phrase? The personal um, is I the particular. Or the particular is the personal. Yep. The personal is the the personal yes. is, is how you connect with people. So if it resonates, is it I would love personal to. With political? Oh yes, oh, political. that's not what I meant. <laughs> but if it resonates, I would I would love to get it translated. So what's lovely about it is that I'm able to. It's being published in the UK and the US by Watkins Publishing, but um, I'm publishing it here in South Africa. I've got the South African rights myself because. We all know that South Africans in general don't buy many books. And I think that that isn't anyone's fault. I think it's because books are usually very expensive. And so I wanted to be able to print them really affordably here so that they would cost the the same as like a bunch of nice flowers from Woolies.
0: Even if they can't read it, I think you've very thoughtfully done an audible, an audio version so people can actually hear it yeah um, and hear it in their own time at their own space at their own pace too at their yeah. own pace. So if anybody would like to find out more um, the griefhandbook.com yes www. will give you all the information but the wonderful thing about it for all that it's quite affordable in terms of other books I think it's 190 rand mm-hmm. is that you're giving um, 10 rand of every copy sold to the hospices yeah which is wonderful.
1: They were such such a gift to us in that last week when we had my mom at home. I I just think it's the most extraordinary service because you connect with them and they guide you through this worst experience of your life with knowledge and empathy and kindness. And they do it all on a donations basis. I, I, I don't really know how that's possible. So like we obviously gave a donation after our mom died, but... I really wanted to honor the work that they do and, and yeah, they, I think they do extraordinary work and I think they're kind of unsung heroes because you don't know about them until you need palliative care. Yeah. Although palliative care isn't only the dying days, it can be for a much longer period of time yeah. for many people.
0: Well I think you've honored them and I think you've honored your mum. I'm sure she'd be mm-hmm. very very proud of you and I think, think so. You've, you've developed you've given a very extraordinary product to everyone who's experiencing or about to experience and let's face it we all are. I know one it's, way the one it's, it's, the, it's the one
1: inevitable. the one thing is we can't escape. Inevitable. Bridget oh, no.
0: McNulty bless you. Thank you very much. Congratulations. The Grief Handbook, a guide through the worst days of your life. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Mm.